As a pastor, being in ministry for many years, I'm convinced of one thing. It's this. As a people, most of us know what to do, what the right thing is to do. It's in the doing it where we struggle. If you've been around the church at all, growing up, many of you know Bible stories, Bible verses, uh, and, and we put Bible verses everywhere. Raise your hand, you know, this is participatory today. Raise your hand if you have a Bible verse on a painting, on a wall hanging, or on a pillow somewhere in your house. Raise your hand. See, we're really good at that. We love to put Bible verses on things. It's just in the actual, many of us could explain the application of the Bible verse. It's in the applying the Bible verse that sometimes things fall a little apart on us. We love the scripture. We put it anywhere. We put it everywhere. That came to, uh, uh, to mind this week when I, uh, in, a, in a new way, I was reminded of it this week. I was away at a district convention. So we are a Christian Missionary Alliance church. That is our denomination. We are part of the Metropolitan District. And uh, there are about 120 churches in the Metropolitan District. And so we had the big CMA Metropolitan District Church Pastors Convention this week. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's... Uh, you know, there was not a lot of chandelier hanging and, uh, you know, hats going on at the convention. But I did meet a guy that uh, is a funny guy. His name's David Butler. And uh, David Butler uh, is a church planter. And David Butler and his wife and Joan and I went, you're, you're going to love this story because you're going to remember. Joan and I went away together to church planting school, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago in uh, Arizona. And uh, we were out in Arizona doing what pastors do, right? Being good. And uh, we just <laughs> doing good, and we decided we were going to go out to eat. Now, remember, this was some time ago, and we were looking for something kind of casual, casual affair, food to eat, and uh, there was a strip mall there, and we thought we saw what just appeared to be a Scottish pub, and we said, well, that'll be good. It'll be casual. We'll go in there and eat, but it, it turned out it was a restaurant called the Tilted Kilt. Uh, anybody familiar with the Tilted Kilt? Um, if you're not... Don't look it up, because you'll get fired from work, maybe, if you pull the Tilted Kilt up, because the Tilted Kilt is kind of Hooters on steroids. It's, you know, next level. I mean, it's, 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 you know, so we went in and we're sitting around going, wow, you know, <laughs> if anybody finds out we're in here, we're probably going to get fired. But, you know, we got our lives. And uh, so we didn't know, right? And we're sitting there. And so anyway, long story short, many of you know that we're in this series called Love Does. And uh, so kind of the, the, the verse that we're camping out on to try to work through what love does is how Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 13. And so when I met David Butler, we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years, and he's cracking up and he's going. And then, you know, you remember how we went and tilted kilt? And he goes, do you remember the girl that was our waitress? She had 1 Corinthians 13 tattooed on her inner thigh, which I had forgotten about until he mentioned <laughs> We'll put scriptures anywhere, right? It's just in the actual doing of the scriptures where we, we struggle a little bit. I'd seen the pictures and bumper stickers. That was a new one for me. We are, um, we're deep in this series now. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to go through what Paul says in that verse, which essentially is teaching us how to be better lovers. Now, I, I want to back up to go forward. Jesus, he, he's why we're here. And Jesus comes into this world, our world, to fulfill what we refer to now as an old covenant. 
an old relational pattern, that, uh, a, a, an older promise of, from God uh, that was made to the nation of Israel. And he institutes, Jesus comes and he goes, I'm fulfilling that. And now I'm going to start something brand new, different, not the same. Don't mix them. This one is done. This is how we're going to for- go forward. It is a new covenant, a new promise between God, not in a nation, but between God and every human being that would ever live. Now, you're familiar with the Old Covenant. The problem is most of the time, as Christians, we take a little bit of the new and we apply it to the old because we were taught growing up, mostly we were taught Old Covenant theology. And and, and so we try to apply Jesus to it and we get very confused. The Old Covenant, which underlies the Old Testament in your Bible, was this. It was a promise between God and a nation he was creating called Israel. And the covenant, the promise was, Israel, if you follow my commands, which began with the first 10 commandments, but then over time became 600 plus of them, if you'll follow these, you're going to be blessed as a people and you'll prosper. But if you don't, you're going, you're going to be cursed. And the way to make yourself right before God to cover the transgressions that you would make of these laws was this complex system of ceremonial sacrifice, mostly involving animal sacrifice and had to be done in the temple in Jerusalem because that's where God's presence was most manifest. Now Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, this is, this is nobody teaches this a lot. He says, that's done with. Don't relate to God that way anymore. I have fulfilled that covenant. I am going, I I am starting something brand new. Jesus would teach, I am the final sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice for God anymore. He is not asking that of you. Jesus has fulfilled it. He is the final sacrifice for all human transgression. And he's created a new way for you to be right before God. You do not get right before God by following rules. You get right before God by having faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus would would claim that supernaturally, okay, we cannot be afraid to say that our, our faith is a supernatural faith supernaturally through that faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you will be reconnected to the power and life source of God. He will begin to dwell no longer in a temple, but with you and in you. And when that happens, you will be empowered to live in abundance and peace like was never available. And this is an amazing promise. Jesus goes, don't worry about the 600 commandments. This new covenant carries with it one. Here's what he said. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. One. Now, how do you do that? This is the key. As I've loved you, how do we love one another? The way he loves us. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The way that we treat each other is the way that Jesus treats us. Our love should look like his love. Now, if it does, now imagine a place, right? There's close to 500 people here every Sunday morning. Imagine 500 people dropped into Morris County that started to love one another the way Jesus loves us. He says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciple. 
Not by how much money you give, not by the bumper sticker on your car, not by the tattoo on your thigh. There's another way. Love one another. Now remember, the old covenant had and still has a lot of fans. I mean, sometimes we think it's easier, just tell me what to do, just tell me what to do, just tell me what to do. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, I'll tell you what to do. Love. No, 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 that's not. What do you mean, really, what do you want me to do? So the old covenant has lots of fans now, and it had lots of fans back in Jesus' day. You've got to remember, there was a religious institution bent on keeping the old covenant temple model in place, sacred men and sacred places. They find this concept of God leaving the building threatening. I mean, if God is out of the temple and he's with people, if the commands go from 600 plus to just one, and if they're not written in a sacred scroll in a building, but they're written on people's hearts, if sacrifices are no longer needed, well, what does that mean for the entire priesthood, the entire temple, all of the things that have been built up? And so that's why they kept trying to trick him. The rulers of the day would come, the religious rulers, the, the religious elite would come and say, well, Jesus, you know, let me ask you a question, because they would love to co-mingle some of the old covenant with his new. One came one day and said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love God. Love others. And then he says something crazy. All of the stuff that has come before, all of the religious systems, the temple, the laws, all of the laws and prophets hang on these two things, which was really one. Love. In fact, the Apostle Paul Paul himself was, a, you might know him as St. Paul if you're from a different religious background. He himself was a, a big wig in the temple system, a big religious leader. He was a sacred man, and he was bent on keeping the temple model in place. So bent on it that he was actually part of the first murder, the first martyr of a Christian. Because he was going to snuff this movement out. It was dangerous. Got out of the building. But then he ran into got out of the building. It ran into Jesus on a road one day, and, and Jesus helped Paul understand how radical this new promise was. And Paul began to get, you know, all of the good works I've done, Paul, by his own accord, he writes it out in one of his letters. He would tell you, I oh no, there's nobody more righteous than me. I mean, I've kept all the laws. Nobody's better at it than I am. And then after he lists all the things that he's, he's done, you know what he goes? You know what? They're all worthless. They're filthy rags. In fact, the language that he uses for all of his good works is so graphic, I can't say it in church. I mean, that's, how, that's what he's saying. This is dung. And here's how he would conclude. In the, the New Covenant, he goes, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. And so, therefore, he says, follow God's example. How do you love? You love like he did. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The only thing that counts is love. And now go in love like he did. Now back to 1 Corinthians 13. This command to love is not the love that you and I are comfortable with or familiar with or sing about or watch movies about. 
This love is a verb. It is not a noun. The Greeks had a lot of words for love. We have one. This love, this command, it's much more specific. Jesus' command for this new covenant was not about an emotion. It was not something you fall in or out of. It's not something that dims over time. It's not something that fades or grows. We just grew apart. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, this is different. Love, the Greek word that was here for love was a word agape. This love that he commands was not something you feel, but it's something you do. It's something you choose. It was an action. This kind of love is self-sacrificing, benevolent, charitable, and not dependent on being returned. Paul writes to a church in a, a town called Corinth. It was a very famous city near Greece. And this was a city that was really good at bumper stickers and, and tattoos. They had all of it down, but you know what they were missing? Love. They're fighting with each other. As we learned last week, people in Corinth are actually, believers were taking each other to court outside of kind of the church. They're taking people to court in this, with the Gentiles, the non-believers, and having the non-believers settle their arguments. Now, how are people going to, I mean, we're talking about what the church should be, right? How we're supposed to love one another. And, and they're, uh, Paul's going, you think they're going to know your believers? They have to settle your fights for you. And so after this builds up for a while, he, he finally comes to this point where he goes, I, look, he says, if I, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is written for church folks like you to examine people like me. Right? Like, I mean, I talk all the time, so, you know, you get kind of good at it. Not, maybe not very good at it, but you get better at it. But if you want to know spiritually where I am, don't look at how good I preach. I mean, go ask people that know me and say, does that guy, does he, do you love, does he love you? Do you feel safe by him, with him? Paul goes, look, if I have the gift of prophecy and I could fathom all the mysteries of the world, if I had all the knowledge that you could have, if I have a faith that moves mountains but I don't have love, what do I have? I have nothing. Then he says to the religious guys, look, if you gave everything that you had to the poor, if you gave your body over to hardship, maybe that you would be tortured for the cause of Christ, you could boast about that, but if you don't have love, you, you have nothing. It's worthless. And so he goes, let me tell you what it is. What I'm telling you, the command that I have for you is this. You need to be patient and kind. Don't envy. Don't boast. Don't be proud. Love, agape, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And as we learned last week, it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, two weeks ago, what we've got now, we've moved into this. What does it mean to love? I understand it's the new covenant and the new command. What does it mean to love? Well, well, two weeks ago in my first class on how to be a better lover, Dr. Eisman told you about the radical concepts. I'm actually not a doctor, just in case you uh, <laughs> be getting an email about that. <laughs> you, we talked about this radical concept that underlies this kind of love, and it was mutual submission. Mutual submission. No, I'm going to submit to you whatever it is you want. No, 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 I'm going to submit to you whatever it is you want. No, whatever you want, whatever you want. I mean, this should be so rich in a community. Like for us at Menem, this should make it hard to get out the door after the service. No, after you. No, after you. No, after you. No, after you. I can't get out of here because these people just keep submitting to one another. Right? 
But even more profoundly, it's this. It's, look, look, I'm going to lay down my life, my hopes. This is the way Jesus loves. My hopes, my plans, my dreams, my future, so that you might live. Then last week, we looked at another concept. That love keeps no record of wrongs. And you also learned that I do. (laughs) Don't laugh at that. And maybe you do too. Pretty sure you do. I hope you do. Actually, I hope you don't. (laughs) In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, when the prophets foretold of what this new covenant would be like, here's what God said. He said, I'm going to forgive their wickedness. He's going to forgive their wickedness. And then he goes on and he says, and I'm going to remember their sins no more. Jesus' example of love wasn't merely that he was going to sacrifice for our sins that they'd be forgiven. That would be enough. That would be awesome. Somebody totally innocent paying the price I'm due, that would be incredible. But it gets even better because God says, not only am I going to forgive them of their sins, I'm going to forget them. And it was forgetting of the sins. Listen to me now. It was the forgetting of the sins that makes the relationship with God possible, renewed, restored, revived. Now, this is not, you're commanded to do this. This is not natural. To forget transgressions, it doesn't just flow. It doesn't doesn't always feel right or good or just. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know what? Flow is being impatient and unkind. I'm good at that. Envy, no problem. Boast, I could do it with the best of them. Paul's commanding us to do something that really is only possible as you connect to this life-giving source of Jesus through faith. But when I don't, you know what I have? This baby right here. It's my record of wrongs. You know, I've got, I've got them all. I went through it with you last week, right? Cabinet 1-1, one, one, file drawer 1, that's reserved for the person closest to me, my spouse. Now, this is empty. I learned after last week that this needs to be empty. <laughs> this one is for my kids. All the things. I mean, we can go through them, right? Remember, I did this last week. We pulled file one out of here. This is my, my kids. And this was, uh, you know, as we said last week, I hate you. I wish I was never born. I can't believe you're, saying, you're not letting me do this. All the other kids' parents let them go. You know, we have all of those. But this is where I keep all of my records of wrongs. The words, the actions, the slights, the perceived disrespect. They're they're all just tucked away and I can pull them out whenever I need. Right? Joan asked me to do something. Bothers me. You know what? Do you remember this, Joan? Remember this? Remember what you said? Remember what you did? So I've got it right here. Remember remember I told you last week? I've got these files. These are for you guys. Um, I needed two for... (laughs) This is is where I keep all the slights that that I've felt from... Not Obviously, I'm joking about you guys. But from others. Right? Now, let me show you what happens here. Over time... Over time, files of past wrongs do something. Files of past wrongs create filters of past wrongs. Files of wrongs create filters of wrongs. Startup topic. This is my file of Joan 
asking me to do something. Now, over the years, Joan has asked me to do a lot of things. Nothing relative to what she does for me, mind you. But she'll say, after cooking a full dinner, would you mind putting the dishes away? After doing my laundry, would you mind folding it? You know, I could go on and on. And I give her the same response every time. I'm going to do that as soon as I get done with this. Now, if I have a file in my mind that Joan is always pestering me for something, and she simply asks me to pick up after myself, when it runs itself through my filter, what do I come back with? That woman never stops nagging me. Right? Now, that's not what's happening, but that's what I feel. Kid comes home late from curfew. File all of the things they've said, all of the times they haven't, all the ones they've missed, all the things. And all of a sudden, you know what? It's not that they didn't come home for curfew. It's that this kid doesn't respect me, has no respect for authority, none. Does it all the time. I, I could give you a list of it. These get complex, okay? I mean, they, you don't know how good we are at this, right? Like, go down here. Ladies. Had a bad relationship, right? And so you meet somebody new. What do you run, what do you run the new guy through? The filter of the old guy. And so why should I trust you? You're just going to hurt me. I'm just going to look and pick and find what's wrong with you because why would I ever just believe? I, 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 you don't understand what my past experience is. We have thousands of these things in our lives. And when we have records of wrongs, while we might have forgiven, these records, what they keep us from doing is truly loving somebody. Let me remind you of this, because if we keep records of wrongs, we're never going to be able to do what Paul says. This is the reason I'm going over this. If we keep records of wrongs, which is natural, we will never be able to do the next step in loving, something that Paul says love always, 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 always does. Here's how he put it. Paul continues right after he said love keeps no record of wrongs. He says, love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. He takes these four little Greek words, one, or one Greek word, he uses it four times, and puts four words after the one word, and he says that this is what love does. Not occasionally, not sometimes, not maybe. Love, this command that we're supposed to do under this new covenant, this is what it always does. It always protects it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. This is not natural. What have I told you? You are always to trust. Is that smart? Is that dangerous? It always hopes, despite circumstances, despite, it always hopes. Let, let me explain what he's, he's getting at. Because he's giving a non-negotiable. He says this has to happen in order there to be love. You are going to have to trust. Always. Another translation says, love always believes. 
Love always believes. It always hopes. Now, do you know what keeps you from always believing, always trusting, and always hoping? Do you know what keeps you from doing it? This baby right here. Trust. All this woman does is nag me. All these kids do is disobey me. And all these people do is say nasty things about me. How am I possibly going to love and trust and believe? Are you crazy? History tells me something different. I've been burned before. I'm not going to be burned again. And so you know what files and filters do over time? They build a little callus around your heart where you start to go, yeah, I can forgive, but I can't. I can't let that go because if I let it go again, what happens? I mean, if I, if I, I, if I, I mean, you want me to believe again? I'm just going to. Now, look, some of these things are small. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I am the king of forgetting things. Ladies, with as much love for your husbands as possible while you do this, raise your hand if your husband occasionally forgets to do what you've asked him to do. May I see your hand? Here's what I'm here to tell you. He is so much better than I am. I, for, I literally forget almost everything my wife asks me to do. Literally, almost every single thing. Like 100%. <laughs> Joan asked me to put something away, I tell her yes. You know what I realized? There was a writing to this. Almost my normal answer is always, as soon as I get up, which occurred to me, I'm down a lot because... <laughs> Literally, I think, right? I'm not even joking. It's literally that's why as soon as I get up, and then I trip over it the next morning because I forgot. Now, if Joan were a normal human being that was keeping records of wrongs, and they build up over time, and they create a filter for her, the filter could be as simple as, you know what? My husband's forgetful. I don't know why I even ask him to do anything. He's so forgetful. But over time, it could get a little more clogged, and the filter could begin to become, you know, you know what? He's lazy. Or my husband doesn't listen to me. And as the record of wrongs piles up and piles up, piles up, the filter can get pretty clogged up with records of wrongs to the point where I forget to take the recycling out. And you know what it says to my, to my wife? He doesn't love me at all. And the question becomes for Joan, in that moment when I forgot for the 10,000th time, what is she going to choose to believe about me? Because here's the truth. I really just forgot, I swear. Like, I swear. There was no malice involved in it. I wasn't trying. There was no intention. I just forgot the Cowboys scored a touchdown. You know, that rarely happens. But uh, somebody from church texted me. You know, I got involved with something with the kids. I just forgot. But what happens is once you get a filter, it doesn't matter how clean the water goes in. Once it gets clogged, dirty water flows into the relationship. And sometimes, depending on how clogged the filter is in a relationship, sewage pours forth into the relationship. And so for Joan, in that moment, the question is, what will Joan choose to believe? Will Joan choose to trust and believe and hope? Or will Joan go, I knew it. I knew it. I don't even know why I ask. She has a choice. When my kids come home late from curfew, right? What is my choice? Well, you know, I've got a choice in that moment. Oh, these kids, my father would have, you know what he would have done to me if I had done this? 
They know I respect them. They don't respect me. I know. What do I presume? By the way, when your kid comes home, what do you presume he's out doing? Handing out tracts on the corner somewhere? There's a just, you move towards this presumption. You don't believe all things and hope all things. Your boss at work, review time. Who loves a review, right? I mean, even if you're good, right, the boss is supposed to give some, some, some critical feedback, some areas of improvement. How many of you walk out, even after the areas of improvement thing, and go, that man loves me. I mean, he loved me enough to tell me the things I'm bad at. But that could be true. Right? It, it depends because you have this file cabinet and you're running. You haven't forgotten these past wrongs and so you run everything through them. The question is, what does love say you trust? What does love say you believe? It says you believe and hope and trust all things. These records of wrongs go deep. Remember last week I, I pulled one out. It was covered in dust. I blew that off first service. Several of us almost choked, so I'm not doing that again this week. But I had one in there that I, I still, I had this file, there's a girl that laughed at me when I was a senior in high school, jogging by, and her and her friend chuckled as I went by. Man, I can apply that filter everywhere. Maybe you were told you were ugly, or slow, or you weren't smart, or, you, or you know, maybe you grew up, I mean, there's so many filters that get clogged up in there. Maybe you grew up and you were the middle child, and there was a lot of attention paid to everybody else, and so you're always trying to feel loved, and so you're looking for it, and you're ki- I mean, it, all these, these, these wrongs, they're just, I know I'm treading on some sensitive stuff here. Some of you have tough, really tough stories. I know I'm pushing some buttons. I had a woman after the first service said, you know, you don't know what's been done to me. I know, I mean, I know. This principle does not mean that, remember, love does not say you're getting it back. Jesus did all of these things, and you know what happened to him. But this is what love looks like. Look, love sometimes has to look differently. I get that. I'm not talking about abusive relationships or addictive behaviors. That's going to look different. But here's what what the scripture teaches. Teaches is if you forget the past wrongs, remove the filters, and begin to believe in all circumstances and trust in all circumstances, you will see what has been discovered as the greatest secret behind every great relationships. Now, once again, I love this. God revealed it to Paul 2,000 years ago. The world is catching up. There's a guy named Marcus Buckingham. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, we've seen him a couple times when we've gone to leadership things here at the church. He, he wrote a book. Um, uh, called, I want to give you the, the title of it, The One Thing, The One Thing You Need to Know. Wrote a book, The One Thing You Need to Know, and his premise was that in every successful thing in the world, there's one thing you can reduce every success down to one core thing. And if you get the core thing right, you're likely to be good. And so he examines, and his team, they examine all kinds of endeavors under the sun and look for the one thing. And then they examine marriage. It's a relationship, Right? What is the one thing that would make a marriage successful? And so they set out and they studied successful long-term relationships to find it. They interviewed thousands of happily married couples over the course of many different studies. And what they would do in these studies is they would hand each couple a, a checklist of essentially 1 Corinthians 13 items. Is your, first you would rate yourself, then you would rate your spouse on things like, are you or your spouse kind and affectionate, open and disclosing, tolerant and accepting, patient, warm, sociable? 
And so you would rate yourself and then you would rate your spouse. Now these couples are not like love-blind teenagers. They had been on together an average of 11 years. Now what they expected to find, what they expected to find was results of past studies of bad marriages. They used to study bad marriages and the thought process was if you study a bad marriage, a broken marriage, you could figure out what went wrong and not do it. And so they had studied bad marriages, and what they had found in bad marriages were that the couples didn't know each other at all. They really, you know, they, they had no concept of what each other's strengths and weaknesses were, and as a result, the marriage is just unwound. That's what they thought they would find. They thought, so, if these are successful, what we're going to find is, in a successful relationship, couples have a deep understanding and a realistic view of each other. They expected to find that, they, that couples that were still together made allowances for the imperfections of the other, glanced over them. But that's not what they found. This is absolutely fascinating. It applies to every relationship and is the secret to love. What they found was 100% different. When they looked at the results, these couples rated the other higher in every single category every time. The husband thought the wife was better than she rated herself, and the wife thought the husband was better than himself every single time on every category. The guy sits down, he gives a realistic response about himself, which was probably even better than he was, he was rating himself. (laughs) Yet, in these relationships, the wife rated him higher. Same thing with the wife, the husband always rated her higher than she rated herself. Here was their conclusion. This is so good, you guys. The conclusion from the test was that love really is blind. Right? They they did not have a realistic view of their partner. They had a completely unrealistic view of their partner. Here's Here's what their conclusion was. So over time, positive illusions create an upward spiral of love. Remember when you first fell in love? He couldn't do anything wrong. She couldn't be more beautiful. Positive illusions create an upward spiral of love. My illusion gives me a conviction. My conviction leads to security. My security fosters intimacy, and my intimacy reinforces love. Here is the summation. Putting these conclusions together, this is the controlling insight can serve as the one thing you need to know about a happy marriage. This is the one thing to have a happy marriage, and it applies across every relationship. Find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior, and believe it. Don't presume the worst. Don't believe the worst. Don't go back through all of the things. He always does this. He does this every time. She never, oh, she's always, oh, like, these kids never listen. No, no, no. But hope all things, trust all things, believe all things, find the most generous explanation for it, run the incident through that filter. They actually gave examples. The research tells us when you notice a flaw, Recast it in your mind as a strength. This is an action. Love does, okay? Stick with me now. When you notice a flaw, recast it as an aspect of strength. Thus, she's not impatient. She's intense. (laughs) This is actually right from the study, okay? Or he's not narrow-minded. He's focused. (laughs) Now, initially... They acknowledge this may feel like you're playing mind games with yourself, but you're actually doing something quite clever. Here's what I would tell you. Yeah, you know what you're doing? You're loving. 
Because love trusts all things, believes all things, hopes all things. This is what love does. It doesn't feel love does it. It chooses to trust. It chooses, it always chooses trust. It always chooses to believe. It always finds the most generous explanation. I mean, love always protects. It protects the relationship. It doesn't look to poison it or to impute bad motive or to run every incident through the filters. It always trusts. It looks for a generous explanation to maintain the trust. It always hopes. It doesn't let everything that's happened in the past crush your faith in the future. And it always perseveres, even in the deepest darkest times in relationships. It looks for the good. This is new covenant love. New covenant love moves from laws to love. New covenant love moves from being law-driven to love-driven. Let me explain what I mean by that. Joan, for example, and me not doing what she asked. Here's the truth. I intentionally did not want to hurt her. I have no desire to hurt my wife. I love her. She's amazing. She does such great stuff for me. Does anybody think I intend... Well, maybe you do think, but I'll tell you. I I did not intentionally forget to do what she told me to do. But in those moments where I do it, day after day after day, Joan has a choice. Run it through all of the record of past wrongs and hurts and come to one conclusion. This guy is lazy. All he does is watch TV. If he really loved me, he would have done this. Or find the most generous explanation. You know, he works really hard. He's really busy. He's getting a little downtime. He's probably wound up, probably wound up thinking about something with the kids. See, conclusion one is the law. You didn't do what you were supposed to do, and these are the consequences. But conclusion two is love. You know, I really, I love John, and yeah, I'm thankful for what he does. It's not a big deal. Which of those conclusions help a relationship persevere? Which of those conclusions is going to draw me towards Joan and go, I can't, she's so good and so loving, I just want to put stuff away, I'm not even going to make her wait anymore, I'm going to go do it. And which of those are going to make me back away from her? See, when Joan loves me with new covenant love and not law, I am drawn towards her. The law and punishment, it might make me take the laundry up, but you know why I'm taking the laundry up? To get her off my back. That does not draw me towards her. We're supposed to love like Jesus. Now watch this. Paul's explaining the, oh, I want to see, this is so cool. Paul's explaining the old covenant and the new covenant. Here's what he said. He goes, don't you know, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law has authority over someone, but only as long as that person lives. For example, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. And so, brothers and sisters, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. By dying to what bound us, we've been released from the law. You no longer serve God under the law. He's no longer looking at you through the law. That is dead. You've been released from it. Why? So that you can serve in the new way 
of the Spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. We read this and we're like, well, what are the rules for marriage? And Can she have sex if her husband dies? And Paul's going, are you kidding? That wasn't the point of what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you that there's a new way for you to live. There's a new power available for you. We serve God in the way of the Spirit, released from the law. We love Him because He first loved us. Now, you might, he, you might hear this and say, John, if I hope all things and believe all things about my wife, my husband, my kids, my boss, they're just going to keep doing the same thing. I need to remind him of all of his shortcomings. I need to make sure he understands how he disappointed me. If I keep telling my kids, if I don't bring it up, if I don't tell them, I mean, they're just, you know what's going to happen? If I just keep letting this go and believing the best things, he's still not going to pick up after himself. They're still going to come home late. And my wife's not going to stop spending. I've got to, I can't live that way. You know, people said the same thing about the new covenant. They said the exact same thing. Here's how Paul addressed them. He said, well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning because God doesn't relate to us that way anymore by the law so that grace may increase? Paul goes, by no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know we were all baptized into Jesus' death? We were buried with him through baptism into his death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, here it comes, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. You've come to obey from your heart, not from the law, not from religious duty, not trying to keep God off your back or on your side. In fact, Paul summed it up this way. There were a bunch of religious folks in Rome and they were, they were judging people like crazy. Paul said, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and you do the same things, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or are you showing contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You want to change around the relationships in your life? Start loving people the way God loves you. His kindness draws you to him. Your ability to hope all things, believe all things, trust in all things will draw people to you. Ben, come up. God's love for you guys, through Christ, he believes all things. He's, he hopes all things. He protects. His love perseveres. This ends Dr. Eisman's Week three of Loveology, how to be a better lover. There is now something you must do. Listen to me now, you must do this. Always, 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 always forget the file of wrongs. Love covers a multitude of sins. Clean out the filters so that... It's a choice every day, in every moment, in every incident, every disappointing text, every frustrating phone call. I will choose to trust, to hope, to believe. God does this over you. Now go and do likewise. <music>